Welcome to the new series of Broad Appeal, the podcast that looks back at female-driven films from the not-so-distant past. I'm Sean. And I'm Brian. How you doing, Brian? Oh, Sean, I'm so relaxed. We've been on an epically long two-and-a-half-week break. What about you? How are you? Oh, you know, super as always. Just the same. Nothing new. Static. Turgid. <laughs> You're not luxuriating in all those marvelous Christmas presents. Well, we got some pretty good Christmas presents, mostly thanks to you. Oh, yeah? I got some uh, lovely George McGovern uh, vintage political badges. I was particularly pleased to find on eBay the one that said, Don't blame me, I voted for McGovern. It sounds like the kind of thing that we should all be wearing. Don't blame me, I didn't vote for him. Yeah. That. Don't blame me, I voted for Jill Stein. <laughs> That's to Susan Sarandon. Listener, Susan Sarandon. You may also be wondering, God, did they get a new studio? Because I can hear every sigh, every whisper, every moan. And you can hear my trashy ice cubes slinking around in my white wine. Clinkity clink. Oh, they're, all, they're all melted now. Oh, shame. Oh, I heard one. <laughs> it means I could drink more wine. It's the Real Housewives of Longford. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, the sound quality that you are hearing is all thanks to the munificence, the beneficence, the generosity, the thoughtfulness, the babeness of two of our most ardent listeners, Mr. Scott Hoffer and Mr. Justin Farkas. Yeah, we got a completely unexpected gift which we had to pick up in a scuzzy corner shop, which was a UPS delivery drop-off. We had to go pick this up and we're thinking, what on earth have Scott and Justin sent us for Christmas? And it turned out to be a gorgeous new microphone. So Scott and Justin, you have no idea how thankful we are. And ladies and gentlemen, let it be known, anyone else who wants to send us presents in the post, we are not beholden to the emoluments clause of the Constitution. We will gladly accept any free items that you send to us. And invested back into this podcast, which you love. So, ladies and gentlemen, not only do we have a new microphone, but we also have a new concept. And this concept, Sean, didn't come from any of our listeners. It came from you. Ah, uh, yes. This whole series is about book-to-film adaptations of female-driven films. How did you come up with this idea that this is what we should be doing? Well, when I was in university, in University College Dublin, I was pretty... Per- that was a thing you put it in water and it soaks up all the liquid. A sponge. Yeah. I was a sponge in every sense of the word, (laughs) where I would uh, absorb new information because literally I was a blank canvas, to use another metaphor. I remember being in a film class and the lecturer made a very throwaway remark, which was that films that are based on other source materials do not have to show any fidelity to the source material because they are not the same medium. Even the concept of faithfulness is questionable. Are you faithful to the exact letter of what occurs in a book and then try to transpose every single scene, every bit of dialogue? Or are you more faithful to the tone, to the spirit, to the effect that a novel might create? Shakespeare, all he ever did was adapt things, and he just cobbled things together and changed them and made them better. And that's basically what Hollywood has been since it got started. It had this vast appetite for sort of absorbing material of all kinds, from best-selling novels and plays and real-life stories, and sort of chewing them up into this new form, the film. Exactly. And the thing about it that is, 
why limit your imagination? Why not make the most of the magic of what cinema can give you? Right. When we were sitting down to make the list for this series, we picked a lot of things that, you know, people might not even think of as literary adaptations. Like, I don't think anybody sits around thinking that, oh, Jackie Brown, that's a literary adaptation. Carrie, that's a literary adaptation. However, the first movie that we're going to look at, The Portrait of a Lady, from the novel by Henry James, that is the kind of thing we think of, right? Like a big, sort of hefty 19th century novel period set costume drama and I think the attitude that you're describing is the sort of thing that everyone always responds like oh well it wasn't in the book or they really didn't capture the spirit of the book or there's no way you could possibly film Henry James this is a perfect first choice because cinema didn't even exist when Henry James was writing his initial works true although it did exist by the time he died yeah yeah for all you pedants listening to me (laughs) You're taking the work of a dyspeptic man, weirdo, person, <laughs> and you're kind of like uh, putting it through the pasta maker of mind of Jane Campion, who is a brilliant auteurist feminist director from a different part of the world. Yeah, I mean, it also makes perfect sense for this to be the first in our literary adaptations for a few reasons. Number one, Henry James and I have been soulmates for as long as I can recall. In high school... I remember being a lowly clerk in my summer job at Osco Drugstore in Dorchester, Massachusetts. Say it properly. What? Dorchester. Thank you. (laughs) At Osco Drugstore in Dorchester, Lower Mills. I swept the floors, I I worked the tills, but what I really longed for were the lunch breaks where I could go into the break room and take out my copy of The Bostonians and read it while my fellow clerks looked at me like, who the fuck is this kid over here? So funny you say that and that we are together. Why? Because when I was a waiter in Fallonburn Deli restaurant in Dublin, the book of my summer was Women in Love. D.H. Lawrence. By D.H. Lawrence. And the difference between us, Sean, has everything to do with the difference between Henry James and D.H. Lawrence. Exactly. I leave that up for the rest of you all to parse. No, but it's really true. There's something about Henry James that I just responded to. I'd never read anyone whose paragraphs and whose depiction of consciousness were so incredible. Soon after that, I did read Portrait of a Lady. And to be honest, I think I read it because I'd read a little item in the Sunday Leisure section of the Boston Globe that said, Oscar winner Jane Campion, who just wrote uh, The Piano and won Best Screenplay, will soon be turning her attentions to Henry James's Portrait of a Lady. And I knew that it was going to have Nicole Kidman in the leading role and all these other characters. And I was like, I- I've got to read this book. I was absolutely flabbergasted. It's a book that's always stayed with me. And in fact, in a lot of ways, I've come to see that my own life has mirrored the life of Isabel Archer, an idealistic, bookish, gorgeous, desirable young American. You told me I was Isabel Archer. Everyone's Isabel Archer. But the key thing is being an expatriate, right? Because Isabel Archer is an idealistic, innocent, um, impressionistic young American who leaves her country and comes to Europe and she gains experience, but, you know, she also perhaps becomes more cynical and jaded through her interactions with, with Europeans. This is Henry James's great theme. And I have to say that... Like, I'll always remember the famous chapter 42, which is this chapter in which Isabel sits in an armchair 
and reflects on how differently her life has turned out from the way she thought. I can remember when I first learned that I was going to be leaving America and coming to England the first time to study at Oxford University. I got a scholarship and I was sitting in this chair in the St. Botolph's Club in um, Boston it had been announced that I would get the scholarship. I knew I would be going to England. And I was literally sitting there in the chair thinking, I'm like Isabel Archer being sent across the sea. Oh, that's so cute <laughs> and lame, but also cute. Well, you know, by that point, I'd written on Henry James as my senior thesis. I watched the dreadful film adaptation that Merchant Ivory did of The Golden Bowl, ladies and gentlemen. Except for the bowl falling off the mantle and breaking, nothing cinematic happens in The Golden Bowl. But, but the bowl, <laughs> it's cracked. It's Unusable, the bowl. That is. The whole thing. That is. I haven't read it. That's literally what it's like. So, Brian, even though Henry James is a very dense author, in many ways the plot of Portrait of a Lady is actually pretty simple, isn't it? Well, it is, although I have this marvellous quote from James's own introduction to the book. Trying to recover here for recognition the germ of my idea, I see that it must have consisted not at all in any conceit of a, quote, plot, nefarious name in any flash upon the fancy of a set of relations or in any one of those situations that by a logic of their own immediately fall for the fabulist into movement into a march or a rush a patter of quick steps but altogether in the sense of a single character the character and aspect of a particular engaging young woman to which all the usual elements of a subject certainly of a setting were to need to be superadded so, I mean... What? Yes. <laughs> that had one of your favorite adjectives. Nefarious! Sean loves the adjective nefarious. But notice that he's saying a plot, a kind of forward march of events, is not what Henry James is interested he's in. About, he's interested in character. He's interested in character, and in this sense, particularly into the character of a young, independent woman. So Isabel Archer is raised in quite an unconventional way. She is a young American woman. She reads a lot. She has lots of ideas and innocence. She comes to visit her relations in England. By a stroke of luck, her cousin Ralph thinks, you know what this woman really could do with her life if she had a lot of money? She could be absolutely, completely independent. I'll convince my father that when he passes away, he should leave her in his will an unexpectedly large amount of money. We actually... <laughs> This is how into yeah, the plot we, we worked were. It out. We how worked much it was out. It, though? it was like four million dollars. Yeah, it was it? like she became in the eighteen eighty equivalent of today being like a millionaire, right? Bear she couldn't mind. make it into Donald Trump's cabinet, but she certainly was a Tory cabinet, maybe. <laughs> yeah, and then of course, sort of lots of people want to marry her, don't they? So who are some of the people who want to marry her? Well, a couple of people actually want to marry her before she gets the money. Uh, that's Casper Goodwood. Yeah. Uh, which is a great name oh my God. for an ardent young man. He, uh, he runs guitar. like a, some sort of industry back in America. It's a so mill, he, a paper mill or something. A paper mill. And he keeps, keeps coming over to Europe from America simply for the purpose of like showing up and being like, marry me. And she's like, no. And there's Lord, Lord Warburton. Yep. Who is a freaking lord. Yeah. And he has an actual castle like with a moat around it and yeah. stuff. It's like fairy tale stuff. Her cousin who's not into her I just want to point out it's called Ralph Touchett. It's unclear. He's sort of into her. He's sort of into her, but even by those standards, he's kind of like, yeah, he's, I'll, let her, I'll let her go. He's like kind of bookish and he's sickly. Yeah. He's he's kind of gay. Yeah, he's really gay and he's kind of... Um, gay in the 
completely desexualized way. <laughs> he's, he's the Henry James standing basically. Character. And then she ends up with this kind of effete, somewhat sophisticated expatriate American who lives in Italy. Who also gives off the gay vibe, just saying. Yeah, because he loves to collect curios and gugaws. Bibelos. Bibelos, yes. The, the word bibelo appears in this book more than in any other work of literature ever. The word bibelo is on every other page. And that guy's name is Gilbert Osmond. And Sean, when she... Got set up with Gilbert Osmond. Did you think, oh, this is going to turn out well or badly? Well, I knew it was going to turn out badly because there's a whole load more book to go, wasn't there? <laughs> yeah. So she, she basically makes a disastrous marriage and she has to face the consequences. That's kind of the plot. She sort of then learns that her entire marriage was founded on an illusion, right? An illusion in her sense that he was one type of man and turns out to be another, but also the evil machinations of another character that we have not mentioned. And what is that person's name? The truly treacherous yet effortlessly glamorous Madame Merle. What does Merle Merle mean in French? Tell me, Brian. It's a raven. Ooh. Yeah, a Merle. <laughs> Madame Serena Merle. Serena Merle. So basically, ladies and gentlemen, if you haven't read The Portrait of a Lady, the not-that-surprising conclusion is that Madame Merle has actually been a villain. She's a villain, and she's sort of the cause of Isabel's trouble. Now, described in that way, woman fends off different suitors, makes a bad marriage, ooh, a secret plot. It actually making it sound kind of exciting. But it's hundreds of pages of dense block paragraphs. Yeah, so let's tell the listeners how we approach reading this book to each other. Yeah. We were in a used bookshop in Bloomsbury one day. Scoob Books. Yeah, Scoob Books, which is underneath the Brunswick Centre. Go there if you're in London, it's great. It is great. It was one of those things where it's like, Brian, this is the book that you've always been mentioning. It's only, what, £2.50? I'm going to buy it. And then I started reading it and that I told, day I, on I the bus. And I also told you, like, you're a bit like Isabel Archer. I'm not sure why you I You tell that. all the boys that, I do. You? It's kind of my pickup line. But by this point, we'd been dating for a while, so it wasn't a pickup pick line. Pick up and drop off <laughs> line. Thank you. Every every gay boy is a bit like Isabel Archer. It's your pick up and drop dead line. <laughs> So I started reading this on the bus on the way home and I returned to Brian. I, I kind of cackled out loud a few times, like within like 20 pages. I said to him, did you tell me to read this because it's so full of campy, bitchy dialogue? I was like, it's full of finely wrought paragraphs exploring consciousness. And it is. <laughs> this book is basically divided into two ways. There's big, long scenes of back and forth. Everyone's ejaculating all over <laughs> everybody else. By which we mean speaking. Yeah. But well, basically, what else we're talking whenever about? Henry James uses the word intercourse, he means dialogue. And whenever he uses the word ejaculate, he means, like, exclaim. He, I bet every time he wrote that word, he had, like, his tongue sticking out, winking at the page. <laughs> anyway... The, the rest of it is full of about three or four pages at a time of completely unparagraphed text. Sean got so into this that he made the suggestion that we read Portrait of a Lady aloud. Ladies and gentlemen, at that point, I knew I loved him. <laughs> no, honestly. Reader. <laughs> I married him. <laughs> we spent the better part of 2016 reading aloud The Portrait of a Lady in bed. It took us a long time. We could only get through one post, or two chapters. It was post-cigarette all each time. <laughs> it was foreplay, wasn't it? We'd read a few pages of Henry James to make it all hot and heavy. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> but it became quite clear with each new page. 
is this a Brian Page or a Sean Page, right? In retrospect, it really should have been the other way around because I should have read all the block pages because that forces me to stay awake. Uh-huh. Whenever you would read the long blocks of pages, I would inevitably drift off. Oh, wow. And, but when I'm reading the bitchy ones myself, you're paying way more attention than I am to the, what I'm reading. Yeah, anyway, that's what we did. So Sean would often read the dialogue, and I would often read the internal monologue, or free indirect discourse, which is a term that we, I'm sure we'll return to again and again in this podcast as we talk about the other novels we've read. I just want to give you a brief example from the famous chapter 42, where Isabel has been sitting in that armchair and she's kind of learning how her entire marriage was founded on a mistake. Now, you look at this on the page and Sean's absolutely right. There's about 17,000 semicolons. There's very few paragraph breaks. There's no paragraph it breaks. Looks, it looks incredibly dense. But in terms of capturing the way that a certain kind of mind thinks and feels and that moment of deep consciousness, I think it's unparalleled. What did he think of her? That she was base, vulgar, ignoble? He at least knew now that she had no traditions. It had not been in his provision of things that she should reveal such flatness. Her sentiments were worthy of a radical newspaper or a Unitarian preacher. Huh. The real offense, as she ultimately perceived, was her having a mind of her own at all. Her mind was to be his, attached to his own like a small garden plot to a deer park. He would rake the soil gently and water the flowers. He would weed the beds and gather an occasional nosegay. It would be a pretty piece of property for a proprietor always far-reaching. He didn't wish her to be stupid. On the contrary, it was because she was clever that she had pleased him. But he expected her intelligence to operate altogether in his favor. And so far from desiring her mind to be a blank, he had flattered himself that it would be richly receptive. He had expected his wife to feel with him and for him, to enter into his opinions, his ambitions, his preferences, and Isabel was obliged to confess that this was no great insolence on the part of a man so accomplished and a husband originally at least so tender. Now, what that is, it's describing her husband's sense of dominance over her, but it's told through her own thoughts, her own mind. So it's, it's a big piece of self-actualization. But through these elaborate metaphors and this sense of hearing our heroine's own thoughts in James's own narration. And was that just not done? It had been done to an extent by Flaubert in Madame Bovary, who was sort of the great precursor of this. But I think James took it to a, to a new level, trying to depict mm. the way that people think through the way that the narrative structures the sentences. So, yeah, when we got to those big block paragraphs, Brian was ejaculating all over the bed with excitement. And was this ejaculations of the teenage variety? <laughs> These were all sorts of ejaculations. Lots of good wood. Uh, anyway, but um, should we Did give... you touch it? <laughs> Henry James is a little bit like Cole Porter. Do you know how Cole Porter will like have all those little like are they or aren't they double entendres? You like, mean like baby, I'm the bottom, you're the top. Yeah. Like I think these gay men knew what they were writing. They had to be anyway. Um, shall we read some sections from Sean's favorite character, Madame Merle? If by we you mean I will, then yes. <clears throat> okay, so in this scene, this is the introduction of Madame Merle to Isabel Archer, our heroine. It's Mrs. Touches, Isabel Archer, and Madame Merle herself. She's not a foreigner in spite of her name, said Mrs. Touches. She was born... I always forget where you were born. 
It's hardly worthwhile that I should tell you. On the contrary, Mrs. Touchett, who rarely missed a logical point, <laughs> if I remembered you were telling me, would be quite superfluous. Madame Merle glanced at Isabel with a sort of worldwide smile, a thing that overreached frontiers. I was born under the shadow of the national banner. She's too fond of mystery, said Mrs. Touchett. That's her great fault. Ah, exclaimed Madame Merle. I've great faults, but I don't think that's one of them. It certainly isn't the greatest. I came into the world in the Brooklyn Navy Yard. My father was a high officer in the United States Navy and had a post, a post of responsibility, in that establishment at the time. I suppose I ought to love the sea, but I hate it. That's why I don't return to America. I love the land. The great thing is to love something. Isabel, as, dispas as a dispassionate witness, had not been struck with the force of Mrs. Touch's characterization of her visitor, who had an expressive, communicative, responsive face, by no means the sort of which, to Isabel's mind, suggested a secretive disposition. It was a face that told of an amplitude of nature and of quick and free motions, and though it had no regular beauty, was the highest degree of engaging and attaching. Madame Merle was a tall, fair, smooth woman. Everything in her person was round and replete, though without those accumulations which suggest heaviness. <laughs> her features were thick, but in a perfect proportion and harmony, and her complexion had a healthy clearness. Her grey eyes were small, but full of light and incapable of stupidity. Incapable, according to some people, even of tears, she had a liberal, full-rimmed mouth, Barbara Hershey. <laughs> and in Rose, <laughs> which, when she smiled, drew itself upward to the left side in a manner that most people thought very odd, some very affected, and a few very graceful. Isabel had taken her at first, as we have seen, for a Frenchwoman, but extended observation might have ranked her as German, a German of high degree, perhaps an Austrian, a baroness, a countess, a princess. It would never have been supposed that she had come into the world in Brooklyn, though one could doubtless not have carried through any argument that the air of distinction marking her in so eminent a degree was inconsistent with such a birth. It was true that the national banner had floated immediately over her cradle, and the breezy freedom of the stars and stripes might have shed an influence upon the attitude she there took towards life, and yet she had evidently nothing of the fluttered, flapping quality of a morsel of bunting in the wind. Her manner expressed the repose and confidence which come from a large experience. Experience, however, had not quenched her youth. It had simply made her sympathetic and supple. She was, in a word, a woman of strong impulses, kept in admirable order. This commended itself to Isabel as an ideal combination. And, Sean, that concludes your audition for the Audible book reading series of Portrait of a Lady. I think I need a glass of water when I do it. <laughs> This but wine is dehydrating. Honestly, ladies and gentlemen, you, you you should have seen Sean's face twisting into that sly, sardonic, cutesy smile because Henry James's prose just brings that out, doesn't it, Sean? Yeah, it does. There was that wonderful moment just describing Madame Merle's lips. You knew exactly who had to play her in the film, and which is Barbara Hershey, a she of the collagen-injected lips, ladies and gentlemen. But as we transition from this book into thinking of it as a film... That is, I suppose, how film adapters often think, right? What will I keep? What will I get rid of? And who will embody these people? To read this text and say, 
Of course, Barbara Hershey. That is the skill of a good casting director. Yeah. As I was reading Portrait of a Lady for the first time in whatever it was, 1994, 1995, I knew that Nicole Kidman was going to be playing Isabel Archer. That's who I was picturing. I also knew that John Malkovich had been cast as Gilbert Osmond. I kind of suspected he was probably going to be a bad guy because I'd seen Dangerous Liaison. Because it's John Malkovich. It's John Malkovich. He's always going to be kind of creepy. But what do you know about Jane Campion's movie? What have you heard about it? Well, I think she took great liberties, creative liberties in how you present this very dense 19th century style of a text. It's deeply internal. It is, in many ways, unfilmable. So it's kind of setting her up to show some creative flourishes as best she could. I mean, I think the other thing that's important to note is that this movie came out in the mid-1990s. It was the high watermark of the costume drama. If you think about it now, we don't get that many prestige, critically acclaimed costume Mm. dramas these days anymore. But throughout the kind of 80s and 90s, it was oh, a yeah. cottage industry. And the two names on that cottage... Can I see them? Yeah. Merchant Ivory. Merchant Ivory, they were like the gold standard. And some of those Merchant Ivory movies are amazing. They knew how to do these kinds of books. Henry James, E.M. Forster, right? When I read that this was going to be directed by Jane Campion, and then the reviews started coming in and said, oh, she's done all these crazy things with the book, and she's being non-traditional... Priggish high school age Brian was like, why didn't she just let Merchant Ivory film this book? She's cast all these wonderful people like Nicole Kidman, and then she's gone and done all this crazy feminist stuff to it. And then I started talking like Catherine Hepburn. What is going on with this? So, I mean, I believe it. I, <laughs> that's what I was like, folks, when I was in high school, as listener Scott Hoffer can attest. I was really annoyed that this masterpiece of traditional literature, which I loved, was then put through the kind of feminist, surrealist Cuisinart to produce the film that we're about to watch. And this is exactly why I'm excited to see this. This goes right back full circle to what I said earlier. Why should a film be faithful to the book, the source material? This film, from what I know about it, isn't. I mean, I think I know that it's costume drama. Right, it's not set in Mars. Yeah, yeah, okay, so it's traditional in that sense. But I think is that she told the story with various surrealist flourishes, like a plate of beans speaks to Isabel. Yeah. That is the only only thing I know because you keep saying it all the time James's metaphors a lot of them are intensely visual and I think the thing is that Jane Campion is trying to use her visual sensibility with kind of light and shadow and all those many bibelots that Gilbert Osmond collects to kind of create visual motifs. I'm very excited about this. Yeah, I'm excited too because I really remember not liking this movie when I was a kid and I have a feeling that I just was not sophisticated enough to appreciate what she was doing. Yeah, because you probably had a rod up your ass about adaptation. (laughs) Yeah, maybe that's possibly true. Um... Can I just ask, before we turn to, like, enumerating who's in this movie, what do you think that a late 20th century feminist from New Zealand, why is she drawn to this story to tell? Because Isabel Archer is a great character. The men in her life, the immediate men in her life, are saying, this woman deserves anything but being married off to someone. So we are going to do our best to give her the ability for her free will not to land her in this situation. Which means money. So she'll be independent. Yeah. Yeah. And that in itself 
is a great starter. Mm -hmm. It gives Isabel a type of free will that many heroines of that age probably wouldn't have got. Right. So I think people find it quite frustrating that this woman who we've come to love for her independence of thought, her independence of decision-making, she ends up with exactly the wrong man. I mean, do, could you relate to this to this story at all? Yeah, of course you can, because it's all about a series of choices that you don't make. The choice that you do, mm-hmm. thinking that the right ones at the right time. Right. And, like, it's it's not a whole kind of road, not travel thing. It's more like, I believed it was important at the time. Right. Even though everyone, all my friends and family are saying, don't marry Gilbert Osmond. She gets it into her head that she knows best, and she really does not. No. Should we just run down the amazing cast? Yeah, I think okay. everybody's in it. Yeah, literally every single actor is in this movie. Our heroine is the amazing Nicole Kidman. If you want to know some things about what we think about her, go back and listen to our episode on To Die For. Mm-hmm. The sort of villain of the piece who she eventually marries is John Malkovich. Barbara Hershey plays Madame Merle. Yes, multiple Academy Award nominee Barbara Hershey. Multiple. Yeah, she played Mary Magdalene in uh, Last guess, Temptation of Christ. I guess two is a multiple. Two is a multiple. <laughs> there is the great Shelley Winters, who plays Mrs. Touchett. I think it's her last film role. Yeah, marvellous. There is Shelley Duval as the Countess Gemini, who we obviously can't spend all our podcasts talking about. She's described as this bird-like woman, beaks and and completely vulturous. I have to say, when Shaw was first reading the the novel, he was like, why didn't you tell me there was a character named the Countess Gemini? And I was like, I don't even remember the Countess Gemini. And she turned out to be the most marvelous character yeah, to read aloud. played by Shelley Duval. Shelley Duval. Mary Louise Parker, one of my least favorite actresses, <laughs> is in this. I do think this is probably the only thing I've ever liked her in, but we'll see. Yeah. Um, she's a, a... Friend. A friend and young lady journalist traveling through America. And then we have some men. We have Christian Bale, a very young Christian Bale as Edmund Rosier, who is the young bibelot collecting man who the all, <laughs> all these they all bibelots, bibelots. who wants to marry Gilbert Osmond's daughter, and then we have Vigo Mortensen, sexy Vigo Mortensen as Casper Goodwood, and Richard E. Grant as um, Lord Warburton, and who plays Ralph? Ralph is Martin Donovan, and Mister Touchett is. Sir John Gielgud. No. That old queen. Can't say that, Brian. Why can't I say that? Because it's disputed and not verified, and we cannot mention anything about John Gielgud in this podcast. Okay, for legal reasons. We don't have a lawyer. I'm sure Scott and Justin could provide us with legal fees if we wanted to. Anyway, I feel like this is an episode long, this episode. It's the way it is. Um, Sean, we're about to look at a radical 90s feminist take on a fascinating... Uh, 1880s proto-feminist novel. Uh, it's the kind of thing that made adolescent Brian get his knickers in a twist. Will we like it? I am going to say yes. Well, let's cozy up with some corsets and bonnets. It's the portrait of a lady. Portrait of a lady. Portrait of a lady. A lady. Amira the clearest mirror and the most loyal mirror and that's so when I love that person I know that they're going to shine that back to me
what I wish to say is that I find I'm in love with you. Oh. No. Matter better wait. No, you may heed it now or never as you please, but after all, I must say it. I'm absolutely in love with you. Don't say that, please. I haven't the idea it won't matter much to you. I have neither fame nor fortune, so I offer nothing. I think I'm glad that we're separating. If you weren't going away, you'd know me better. I shall do that some other time. There's one thing more, a little service I should like to ask. I'm going to Rome for a few mm. days. Would you go and visit my little daughter before you leave Florence? Yes. Of course. Sean, who are you? And what have you to do with me? Everything. Everything. You read the book. It took you a year. You watched the movie. It took you over two hours. Was it the way you expected it to be? Yes and no. I think I said to you, right as it was starting, I was like, which character do you think is going to be the first one to speak? And you were like, Isabel, Lord Warburton. Ralph. And I was like, nope, 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 nope. And suddenly we heard an accent, didn't we? Yeah, we heard an Australian accent. Saying something like, the first moment of a kiss is always one that I'll always remember. <laughs> yes. Actually, to be honest, was it mm, Australian uh, or was it New Zealand? Interesting. It was definitely Antipodean. A lovely word. Very lovely. Very Henry James kind of word. It begins in black and white as well, by the way. Mm -hmm. And modern dress. In modern dress with multi-ethnic Antipodean accented females <laughs> saying, Mmm, I love a kiss. <laughs> they yeah. said a few other more mm, profound things. Mmm, I love it when I'm kissed. It ended with a sort of profound image. One of them said... I'm looking for him to be my clearest and most loyal mirror, which is a lovely thing. But this was a bunch of contemporary 1996 women. One of them had a disc man. As you said, they were multi-ethnic. And then we get the title of the film. It's written on somebody's hand and the yeah. camera kind of pans over it. Yeah. Sensuously. Yes. Your hormones were raging at this. You were like, oh my God, Brian, I didn't expect this movie to be so experimental and revolutionary. Yeah, if this is where I can interject. Yeah, go. This was very misleading. It set the film up to be much more experimental than it turned out to be. By the end of the film, what I was thinking of was commerce and business people and directors and producers and distributors. I don't know who was talking to who or, or what was being said to what authority, but it gives you these, these hints of breaking from form and then you're, you're left not wanting more, you're left wanting any. There are sections of the film that very, very self-consciously have these surrealist or really radical breaks with traditional costume drama naturalism, right? But if you came in at other parts of the movie, you wouldn't think, oh, this is a radical experimental take. You would think, oh, this is a gorgeously shot costume drama. Also, those little scenes, the silent films 
the very old school kind of kinematograph, if that's a word, <laughs> you know, cinetech, if that's also a word, types of images. They actually progress the story quite well. What works in the film is I think that it was a very, very skillful compression of a very dense, meandering story. I would agree with you. I think your word compression is absolutely right, which is both, in my opinion, to the movie's benefit and to its detriment. What she's done is she's very cleverly taken the sections of the book where action actually happens. So we were noting that almost all the dialogue in the screenplay appears to be more or less taken directly from Henry James. And even then, where he might go on for pages and pages, she's compressed it down to these intense nuggets. And for my taste as a writer, what it does is make you realize how arch and artificial some of that Henry James dialogue is when it's boiled down. It's a bit like drinking Ribena that hasn't been diluted in any way. Like, Henry James famously wanted to be a playwright, and he wrote, like, three plays that were all disasters and were laughed off the stage. And I think it's because that dialogue of Henry James, when you see people actually speaking it, feels somehow too composed and artificial in a way. And what you miss is those wonderful long thought monologues. Everybody is kind of having these very... Like, everything they're saying is so dense. They speak in epigrams. The book, that's less so. And you're right that she does a good job of cutting to the chase. Like, the film begins after this credit sequence, doesn't it? We zoom in quite close to Isabel Archer's eyes. We're almost trying to bore into the head and the eyes, the consciousness of this young woman. We don't learn really anything about she's come from America, what's she doing in England, who is she, what is she? She's in a tree. No, she's not in a tree. She's under a tree, sort of in a kind of arbor. And she's being proposed marriage to right off the bat, which you were like, oh, great. Jane Campion is cutting right to the chase. Lord Warburton, first suitor, asking her for marriage. Yeah, so this is why I really respect the film, because I was quite worried that there'd be lots of long shots of lawns, people walking (laughs) on lawns, people being introduced to people on lawns, that kind of thing. Ooh, here's a here's a beautiful house and it's beautiful lawn, okay? <laughs> there are several yeah, lawns. There are several lawns and lots of rain. I thought there'd be way more lawns. It's interesting that you mentioned the lawns because instead of strolling along down the lawns, there's a lot more running across lawns, right? Like Isabel does not want to get married to Lord Warburton and she is literally almost afraid under that arbor. He's like in his very gentle British way like pushing himself on her and she sort of flees from the arbor across the lawn back into the house to, like, catch her breath. And later on at the end of the film, she'll do almost the same thing. And the last sort of shot of the film is, again, her running across a wintry lawn. It's quite a physical film. Like, Jane Campion has preserved a lot of his dialogue, but she's underscored it with, like, physical action. It's not just the running, it's slapping and groping and tripping and nuzzling like there's lots of activity that they do that i don't remember from the book at all i believe in the theater brian you call that blocking oh you? marvelous thank you for that sean yes yeah so one thing that we as the audience are told kind of like in the first third of the film that you find out much later on in the book is that Madame Merle, played by Barbara Hershey, and Gilbert Osmond, played by John Malkovich, have had or have a 
sexual relationship at yeah. least so there's one scene in which we, we find out that Madame Merle is doing the bidding and the manipulation of Gilbert Osmond and while they're having this conversation he is putting his hand up her skirt and kind of kissing her lasciviously on the mouth and in the book this conversation does happen in the yeah, same way but in the in the movie it's hard not to think that they have at least been lovers once yeah like I think maybe an audience would find it disingenuous or cheap for it to be a whole kind of surprise where we were lovers. Yeah, because I guess you are watching them in private. No one else is around. And also, it gives you enough ideas to be inspired by, as in, like, yes, I know they're obviously getting it on, but what are they in relation to each other? Yeah, I mean, interesting, when you say getting it on, they don't actually get it on. He sort of edging her he's like tantalizing her with physical contact that never consummates now i think he's using his sway over her he's drawing on that intimacy that they have to get her to do things for him which is essentially to set him up with isabel i actually really didn't like that scene john malkovich just doesn't work for me as gilbert osmond and that scene literally felt to me like it could have been lifted exactly from Dangerous Liaisons if Barbara Hershey was, like, superimposed by Glenn Close. They literally do the same things with, like, Glenn lying on a chaise and, like, John Malkovich, like, rubbing up against her. We said, didn't we, that the character of Gilbert Osmond in Jane Campion's envisioning of it is this almost pig-like, animalistic man he like nuzzles up against Isabel. It's donkey braying at some yeah, point Yeah, he as well. laughs and does these weird animal noises. His marriage proposal to her occurs in this creepy subterranean catacomb in Rome where he's like spinning her parasol in a kind of hypnotic way and that is not the way that he comes across in the book at all. In the book he's this sort of mild-mannered effete man who she thinks who Isabel sort of thinks, oh I'm gonna help him by by choosing him as my husband. In the in the film, he's this animalistic man who is shocking her with the intensity of desire. But I think to the audience, it's like, whoa, stay away from this man 100%. Wouldn't it be much harder, though, in terms of piquing an audience's interest and making it believable that this young woman would be attracted to a man solely because her beneficence is there to help him unite his family. Oh, absolutely, of course. It makes it far stronger. I think what is then taken away is any sense of him not being an utter and complete creep. There's no shock or discovery when we later see that their marriage turns out to be hell, because we're like, he seems like a supervillain. He seems like Dr. Octopus from Spider-Man, you know? Yes, but <laughs> contrast this to all the other suitors she has in the film, okay? Viggo Mortensen is fucking hot. Viggo Mortensen is fine, that, okay? He has that lovely dimple in his chin and that jawline. Stop. Let me, let me finish. <laughs> I totally understand your, your... You understand my love of his chin, for sure. <laughs> I understand your misgivings for Gilbert Osmond. However... By making all these other men quite pleasant, nice, and handsome in their own way, it neuters them by contrasting it with Gilbert Osmond, who is overtly sexual from I the think, start. I think you're wrong, because if you recall, when she's in that arbor with Lord Wartmerton, yes, he's very British, but he's, like, looming over her. Who's the next person who proposes to her? 
Vigo as Casper Goodwood, and he's this imposing man who is push very pushy with her. And what does he do? He strokes her cheek when she refuses, and she and he leaves. And then we have this amazing section which you loved. What happens? Yeah, he, I love this. So scene. he's not kissed her; he's just sort of touched her cheek. Well, she rubs her head against the fringe of her four-poster bed, and as she lies down, we see a hand approach her. It is, in fact, Casper Goodwood. Uh, when he begins to kiss her. Another hand goes up her leg, and it's the hand of Lord Warburton. And then a moment later, you know, another hand appears, and it's uh, Ralph Touchett. Her cousin. Yeah. And and basically, she's having, like, a, a masturbatory erotic fantasy. And I loved it. And yeah. I loved it. It was great. It was sexy. It was female-centric. It was all about her gratification. Well, I think... It's it, her I, fantasy. I think, it, I think it could be interpreted different ways. It's either, oh my god, all these men want me, but it's also all these men are after me, and I'm a bit afraid of it at the same time. That's like something I could have said half an hour prior to this recording. Actually, and I think this is part of Jane Campion's point in terms of contrasting Isabel's situation with those women in the pre-credit sequence, right? Which is that to choose one of these men is to irrevocably shape her entire life because that is the person she's going to pick. And she's also never had any sexual experience. Like, that comes just Mm. from Casper touching her cheek, not even from really kissing her and she has these fantasies. Everyone says to her when she finally does decide to marry Osmond, Ralph says to her, I didn't want you to fall so soon. That fantasy of trying out these three different men and seeing, you know, do I like a bit of Warburton or a bit of Goodwood or a bit of my cousin Ralph before... I mean, it's sexual liberation. It's saying women should be able to kind of sample the merchandise and decide what they want and have a kind of pansexuality of different types of men, which is the opposite of the constricted climate in which she lives, where she wants independence, but she also wants sexual fulfillment, and those two things are at odds. Okay, agreed. Yeah. And to build on that, she samples sexual desire with Gilbert Osmond with that open-mouthed kiss in the catacombs, mm-hmm. and knows that the only way she can get it is by committing to one. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. And as soon as that scene's done in the catacombs and she's had that kiss, that's where we get the kinematograph scene called My Journey, where she sort of escapes from Osmond for a little while. She and her friend Henrietta go traveling around Egypt and, you know, Syria or wherever it is that they go in the Middle East. Tangiers. And she's, like, feeling the heat and the intensity of foreign climates and strange cultures and she's feeling the smells but all the time she's thinking so much about the sexual desire that Osmond has unleashed that the beans talk to her how did you think of those famous beans now you had told me for so long before we watched this film that a plate of beans speaks to her but I had this kind of feeling that weird shit is going on and that it's going to be visibly represented through you know like I thought the beans were going to negotiate her choices I thought the beans were going to be like, well, madam, you know, like, honestly. <laughs> but, but whose voice did they speak with? They speak with Gilbert Osmond's voice. But they st- they're very stylized beans. Yeah, because what do they look like? They, they don't just look like beans. V- lips. Yeah, they're like labia yeah. of a vagina speaking with John Malkovich's voice, yes, which lips. I have to tell you is like the scariest dream you could possibly have. Yeah. A vagina that speaks like John Malkovich. Well, they were vaginal. Vaginal beans. Yeah, but, so I kind of thought that like it would be as if she was tripping. Yeah. Yeah. And so this is where I was slightly disappointed. You know what, though? I think that debate that we were just having a moment ago about desire and entrapment 
something has worked in this film, hasn't it? If it's been having us to have that debate about Isabel's status as a woman, how it relates to the status of women now and their choices, the way that desire and independence are balanced. I actually think we're not necessarily giving Jane Campion enough credit for making a really compelling, thought-provoking film that, you're right, is stylistically uneven. I would actually say that the film works better in terms of the images than it does in terms of the dialogue. What I'll always remember from this movie is more like the images where Ralph is talking to her about how he wants her to be free, and they're at a breakfast table, and he traps a fly under a little glass and is tapping it. Jane Campion has very cleverly thought about how the visuals are going to underscore, emphasize, subvert the themes, the the light and shade of the film as well, the kind of entrapment and freedom. It's all through. Yeah, the, the criticisms that we have are only because what is essentially quite good could be even better, really. If it was more consistent, yeah. I think that's the thing. It is a bit of a, like, throw everything at this. While still being true to Jamesists, I'm sure. Is it? Well, I think so. I mean, it's rare that I see a film which is so, in many ways, faithful to the original source while still taking as many artistic liberties as possible. I would say this is not the only reading of Portrait of a Lady, but this is a strong and compelling reading of Portrait of a Lady. Can I make a suggestion? What? Portrait of a Lady as a miniseries on Netflix where you have six episodes. I think a story like this would benefit from the storytelling of the Platinum Age of Television. Well, I mean, okay, you've opened up a can of worms here, Sean, because you know how these these Victorian novels were originally published? They were serialized. Yeah, they were published serially. Um, But then we'd have to, like, recast the whole thing with with new people. I mean, well, who's it going to be, like, Kristen Stewart as Isabel Archer? Ugh, no one would marry her. (laughs) She'd just curl her lip all the time. We are, Okay, we have to pay attention to the feedback we've gotten. This is now going to be the Joe Zarin's Tut section of the podcast. We have to talk about actresses. We've only Dr. Been... Joe Zarin's Tut. That's right. Of course, it's for all our listeners. But Dr. Zarin's Tut has specifically said, Brian and Sean, you talk too much about the theoretical things these days. You have to go back to your fanboy love of the actresses. So let's talk. Ladies. Well, you know, for all the listeners at home, I would just say, this is the first episode of a new series. It's a very dense book. Let us have it, okay? (laughs) Let us have this moment. Nicole. Nicole Kidman. I would posit that she is sort of the perfect person for this role. Yeah. You don't sound very enthusiastic about that. She's great in the film. When I think of this film, I don't think about Nicole Kidman. I think about another actress. We're going to talk about yeah, that other actress. I know, Can we but please talk about the woman who is the main character? I know, but this is the problem. Is The problem is that Isabel, I feel like, is just a vessel for the story. I always imagined that Isabel in the book was much more... had a sting in her tail, you know? Well, I mean, remember at the beginning of the film, Nicole has an absolutely wonderful line reading. I think it's her uncle is saying, oh, you're so lovely, my dear. And she's like, yes, yes, I know, I'm perfectly lovely. She's dismissing the sense that everyone has of her. She's this, like, gorgeous, statuesque beauty who's also charismatic and super intelligent, but wants to be free. I agree with you that, in a way, she doesn't stand out. And I think that's because, in the book, you get such access to her inner thoughts. And it's her inner thoughts that are really fleshing out the character and Nicole does the best she can the way that she is in the film is mostly what she has to do is fend off men's advances and then suffer under Gilbert Osmond and like be torn in lots of different directions yes 
I agree with all of that. I think, like you said, that in the book we're privy to so much internal monologue of our character. What do you call it? Free in the... Free in direct discourse. Free in direct discourse. That in the film we have to realise, and yes, she's she's a intelligent, determined, charming, funny, gorgeous, statuesque woman who is existing solely in a sphere of men. These men are so encouraging of her making her own decisions while being like, make all the decisions you want that are the decisions that a woman can make. Right. And even when her cousin Ralph manipulates his father to give her £70,000 and a fortune... It's like he wants to be the one who beneficently bestows on that on her. He wants to sort of be the author of her life. And in the end, she wants to be independent and face the consequences of the choices that she's made, even the mistakes, the bad choices that she's made. Okay, we're still talking okay. about the character. We're All not right, talking about Nicole. Nicole. Okay, let's talk about Nicole. <laughs> I thought she was really good in the in the last half of the movie where I think we can have spoilers, right? Like, basically, she understands that John Malkovich and Barbara Hershey not just have been scheming and are not just lovers, but actually that John Malkovich's daughter, who we thought was from his dead wife, is actually Barbara Hershey's daughter as well. What? (laughs) And that the whole thing has been this elaborate, you know, scheme that even Shelley Duvall knew about all the time and, like, wasn't telling her. And she... Poor Nicole, in one of the scenes with um, John Malkovich, she just bangs her head Mm. against the wall in, like, utter frustration. And that, to me, it was about watching her go through this torture at the end and the sense of pressure. She's been under pressure the whole movie. She's like that fly trapped in that glass, right? I mean, is it impossible to just talk about Nicole Kidman as an actress without inextricably linking it to the narrative stylings of Henry James? Like, it's hard. Well, maybe that's a testament to how well, seamlessly they were integrated. I guess so. I do guess so. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's like a very good book. (laughs) And it should be a very good role. Cinematically, I don't think it is. The juicy role is, say it in her voice, the character known as... Ah, Madame Merle. <laughs> yes. Madame Merle. And how do we first introduce to Barbara Hershey as Madame Merle? We witness her playing gorgeously on a piano. Schubert, if you will, <laughs> looking poised and fierce, kind of slightly noble... Is Barbara Hershey an actress who you have a previous relationship with at all? Only in two things. Beaches, Black Swan. I'm now suddenly really fascinated by Barbara Hershey. Because even though this character does have eruptions of emotion and stuff, she does. It feels so, like, poisonous. Mm. Like, her past is so poisonous. That the feelings that she's experienced have been so horribly affecting that she deals with them by almost pretending they don't exist. She's so surface, like when her like conscience comes out or her soul appears, it's presented in the rain with a red nose and snot running down her. <laughs> because I really think that's a manifestation of how she really feels. You just argued that the Isabel in the film we somehow have less access to than we do in the book. I would say, through whatever magical alchemy Barbara Hershey is able to pull off, we understand Madame Merle as a three-dimensional human being more in the film than we do in the book. In the book, she's sort of a mysterious European woman who's kind of scheming and has a dark past and has kind of done bad things. 
in the film, Barbara Hershey is able in a powerful way. I wrote down in my notes, she's betrayed the sisterhood, right? She was used by Gilbert Osmond as his lover. She gave birth to his illegitimate child. Which he completely keeps in a gilded cage. Right. He puts his daughter Pansy into a convent and kind of trains her up to be a 19th century version of a Stepford wife, like a little, like Vicky from Small Wonder. She's just like a robot. I don't know what that is. <laughs> Whatever. He's made her into a China doll, like a little bibolo. Gilbert Osmond wants to collect these women, but Madame Merle, she both wants to be beholden to him and also not at the same time, right? Like she's been used by him, but she can't leave him behind. Her daughter is under his care. So what is the way that she can connect with this man who's used and abused her? She, well, she, she procures another woman with a fortune for him and then continues to try to manipulate to get her daughter the best possible outcome for her life that she can. There's no other way for her to remain or connect to this broken family. You sense that she is using Isabel but hating herself all the way through. I was vile this afternoon. I was horrid. You may have said things that were in bad taste. I was full of something bad. Or something good, I don't know. I couldn't help it. You've not only dried up my tears, you've dried up my soul. You're very bad. You know, that reminds me of a word that Douglas Sirk would use to describe this situation. He used the French word échec, which I think comes from, I'm guessing, comes from maybe chess or checkmate or something. I think it's about being blocked or something. Yeah. Madame Merle, she's blocked in terms that she can't be, she can't have a family with the family she already has. Yeah. And the family that she has created has also resort, resulted in failure. Her only choice is to fail. And to draw other women... Isabel, who really should be her sort of natural ally, she's destroying this woman's future in the same way that her own future has been destroyed, right? Absolutely. And Gilbert Osmond, it's like he has this harem. He has this one woman who's his lover, he has this other woman who's his wife, and he wants to use them to get things for him and to get things for his daughter. And Isabel chafes at this, but she can't get away from it. If you met Barbara Hershey as that character... You mean if I met Madame Merle? Yeah, basically. If you met Madame Merle... Would you trust her or distrust her from the get-go? I think she'd be one of those people that you're like, oh my god, I want to sit next to her at a dinner party, but I also know that when she goes home, she has some deep psychological shit going on. That woman who on the surface is so fascinating and effervescent and interesting, and you're just drawn to her, but you're also like, girlfriend, you've got trouble. Do you, have you met anybody like Madame Merle? In life. Yes. Darling, I'm in the theatre. Everyone's like that. Mm. <laughs> we smile on the outside, and inside, we're dead. <laughs> um, okay, hopefully Joe Zarin's tut is pleased enough with our gushing a little bit about Barbara Hershey. We promise the next episode, Isabella Uper, it's going to be total gushing, jizzing, whatever you want to call it, right? Amazing. Yeah, just wait. Just wait two weeks. Yeah. Um, lightning round the other actors in the film. I've praised Viggo Mortensen's chin. I'm just going to shout them out to you, okay? Shelley Winters. Uh, kind of like decrepit, like rotting actress. Marvelous. I kind of felt that somebody was holding up like a cue card for her to read off. Well, that's fine. And she was delivering them f as flatly as she possibly could. Okay, Shelley Duval as okay. the Countess Gemini. Uh, Bird-like fountain 
of tat. Yeah, insane jewelry. An actress who I'd never heard of called, like, Valentina Cervi as Pansy, the dopey China doll daughter. I kind of thought she was great. I really, yeah. I, I really did. I mean, We hated Pansy in the book. Yeah. Oh, my God. When we got to read the Pansy dialogue, it was like, oh, here comes Pansy again with her insipid lines. I felt for Pansy much more. Yeah, me too. Did you say to me that you think this actress then became a porn star? No, no. I think she became a tart. What? In real life? I think I read on a Wikipedia page. Oh. She plays like Tartan Restaurant or something. Rumor, rumor. Can Where I, are the fact checkers? No, no, <laughs> this, no, this is the lightning round. Um, her, uh, who else was in the movie? Oh, Mary Louise Parker as Henrietta Stackpole. What did you think of her? I hated her, <laughs> but every time she was on screen, I, I was entertained. What do you mean you hated her? How could you hate Mary Louise well, Parker? You no, know, Brian, you said in, in modern parlance... Henrietta Stackpole is on the spectrum. In the book, she's a lady journalist who's friends with Isabel. She kind of is totally blunt. She doesn't pick up on social cues. I think Henry James is also kind of coding her as a sort of asexual, mannish, slightly lesbian woman as well. Do you think asexual and lesbianism are not the same thing? I know. Lesbianism. I, I know, darling. But definitely also on the spectrum. So are you saying that, like, that is what Mary Louise Parker was picking up on in her performance? Uh, she picked up on it and she, like, swung around the room. You enjoyed her every time she came on screen. Yeah, but I know, but I did. But I also was like, God, no, not more of Henrietta. If there's much less of her than there is in the book. If that was too much Mary Louise Parker, then please do not go back and rewatch Angels in America. Because remember, you might recall it's a six-hour miniseries in which she's always coming out and being like... Hey, what's wrong with Mormonism? Is my husband gay? Can I just get some more drugs? Where's Dr. Ruth? Didn't she win an Emmy for that? <laughs> she did. It worked for me as Henrietta Stackpole. Isabel, what are you doing? <laughs> but could you please, Mary Louise Parker, learn to deliver lines in a slightly different way? Um, have we talked about anyone else? Martin Donovan we liked as Ralph. Yeah, nice what mustache. About, and he was very moving. His connection with Isabel was very strong to the degree that he, when he was on his deathbed, like what happened with him and Nicole Kidman? They make out. They literally like have a like Liebestod. Listen, who hasn't made out with somebody on their deathbed? <laughs> Come on, Brian. I expect that you'll do that with me, Sean. I'm writing it into my will. <laughs> Sadly, wills are read after someone died. <laughs> It'll be oh the- no, posthumously I have to do it. What do you think? <laughs> It'll be like the pre-title sequence of my death. Ew. Ew, gross. Um, concluding thoughts. First of all, this movie was insanely hard to find. I mean, we almost downloaded it illegally. Can I know, imagine? but we actually had to order a copy of it. We went to all the different streaming services and typed in like portrait of a lady and we would come up with the Iron Lady every single fucking time. I had to stare at Meryl Streep in that ghoulish Maggie Thatcher drag. Ugh. Anyway, I think Portrait of a Lady is a very interesting, fascinating film, which should be more widely seen and more widely available to people, right? It's a really interesting movie. Yeah, it is. Do, would you recommend people to watch it? Um, if you're not into costume dramas, don't watch it. What if they're into, like, feminism? Yeah, watch it, but what I mean is, like, I'm into gay porn, but I don't have to, like, watch it all the time. 
I'll just let that one hang, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> just, just leaving that in there. Should all of our listeners take some time to read some Henry James before they die? Say yes. Yes, God. no, definitely. <laughs> we had a great time reading it. It is one of my all-time favorite books. And we lived at Garden Court for a whole year. <laughs> uh, last question. Which of Isabel's suitors would you marry? Lord Warburton. I mean, I hear Why? Because you love a moat. I thought Richard E. Grant was sexy in this. I do not view him. So right. you would just like to be married to a chilly but friendly he was, he was Tory? Not, he's not he was, chilly. He was a Tory. Yeah, but I would have been very altruistic with that money. Well, I would pick Casper Goodwood because a man who runs a paper mill and has that cleft chin, oh, that's some good wood. Oh, how about this? I'd marry Ralph Touchett because at least I know he'd be dead thereafter. Touchit. <laughs> 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 You see? It has stuck in my brain, folks. Just go back. Fuck you, People Brian. don't know what I'm talking about. All right. That is the first episode of our Chick Lit series and of it's, literary adaptations. It's only three hours long. I hope <laughs> you enjoyed this. Luckily, the other books that we'll be talking about in the future are not quite as long as this one. The next book to film adaptation we'll be looking at is The Piano Teacher, written by Alfred Jelinek, directed by Michael Haneke, and starring Isabel Huppert. Who, let it be said, was the best thing of 2016. Yeah. She, Isabel she Huppert. She got me through it. So you'll hear much, much more about our gushing admiration and worship of Isabel, our strange sadomasochistic fantasies that the piano teacher may have No, I'm still reading unleashed. it. <laughs> yeah, Sean so. has to finish reading it, so get reading. Yeah. If you have just discovered Broad Appeal, we hope you will... Follow us in every way possible. You should subscribe to the podcast. We're on iTunes and we're on Stitcher. And please, we are putting out yet another plea. If you have not given us a rating on iTunes, go there, write some comments, give us some stars, make several fake names, do it multiple times. We want to move up the ranks. You can also follow us on Twitter. Yes, at Broad Appeal Pod. Or Sean is at Sean McGovern X. And Brian is at BA Mullen Speaks. All right, we'll see you in two weeks' time with some more Schubert, but a lot more sex. It's going to be one of those times where someone has read the book and the other person wings it. No, no. you're going to finish the book. I will, I will. Get reading. You can't go to sleep until you read at least 50 more pages. Okay. Bye, everybody. Bye.